pray. God, this is a heavy topic. Prepare our hearts. Sexual violence is a monster, and no one is immune from its evils. No man is immune, yet we acknowledge that women bear the brunt. No woman is immune, but we acknowledge that women of color suffer most often. And while no adult is immune, we acknowledge that it is little children who have known more horror than our hearts can bear. Give us room to bear it, to make space in our hearts for these realities, for it is only in making space that we will be compelled to change. Amen. Every night, I rock my little daughter to sleep. Lyle does the bath and the PJ time, and I do the books and the singing and the rocking. And while I'm rocking, I pray for her. Sometimes the prayer changes. If she's sick, I pray for healing. If we've had a particularly difficult day, I may pray for patience. But for the most part, nearly every single night for the last two years, I have prayed almost the exact same prayer. That she would be happy and healthy and brave and kind and bright. That she would be held in God's truth always and that Lyle and I would be good parents and would provide for her well. But every night, for the last two years, I have also prayed this, that she would be safe from abuse, that she would never know the violence of assault, that the evils of harassment would never touch her, that she would be protected from these sexual sins. And the sad part about this is not just that I'm praying this prayer, but it is the fact that when I pray these words, I find myself pleading, please God, protect her from this. Because I know the reality. I know the statistics. And I know that as a little girl who will one day be a woman, they are not in her favor. In America, a person is sexually assaulted every 98 seconds. And every eight minutes, that person is a child. One in five girls are victims of child sexual abuse. One in four women experience sexual assault in college. Ask any female in this room, and she will tell you more accounts of harassment than you are ready to hear. Sexual violence finds its victims in both men and women, but women, no doubt, carry the brunt of this e epidemic. According to an article from the Huffington Post, quote, sexual violence permeates our culture from violent rape scenes on hit TV shows to sexist dress codes that reinforce rape culture, from famous athletes telling young girls they're supposed to be silent to near daily stories of sexual assaults on college campuses 
from a former Olympic doctor accused of sexually abusing more than 100 women to a president of the United States who has been publicly accused of sexually assaulting more than 15 women and was recorded boasting that he grabs women by the pussy. End quote. And this is nearly a year old. We now know that this same Olympic doctor actually molested at least 250 young girls and women during his career. And that the President of the United States has been accused of sexual misconduct from 21 different women and as of yesterday tweeted his first tweet having anything to do with sexual abuse or assault victims protecting the alleged perpetrators. And we have lost count of the entertainers, producers, directors, and other men of esteem in Hollywood and beyond who have misused their power through sexual violence and harassment. That latter industry have, has come up with a really great hashtag and movement pertaining to this pivotal moment in history. Time's up. You may have heard of it. Time is up on sexual violence going unnoticed. Time is up on women not being heard or believed. Time is up on justice never coming. Time is up, and I gotta tell you, it feels pretty good to see the perpetrators pay for once. It reaffirms the message to those men in their workplace or their relationships or their congregations that they better think twice before misusing their power. Time is up on no consequences. I've been watching on Twitter, anyone else? It has been a live feed of accusations and power systems crumbling, and I find myself both sick to my stomach and hopeful at what is playing out. I'm sick because so many men, men who I thought were good, have played a part. I am sick because even more women than I thought have been suffering. And yet I'm hopeful because it's all coming out into the light, finally. And then I look to the church, and it feels an awful lot like crickets from where I'm sitting. Silence. Now don't get me wrong. Some are doing that beautiful work of resisting and dismantling and healing, but hear me when I say what is happening now is not enough. And the irony doesn't get past me that the church is the same institution that is responsible for so much of our culture's misogyny. So much of our country's patriarchal roots stem from theology. Bad theology, I might add. Harmful, oppressive, man-made theology. And it is this same patriarchal interpretation of scripture that gets abusers elected into public office. And it is this same patriarchal interpretation of scripture that tells fine Christian men that they have every right to beat their wives. It's what tells megachurch congregations to applaud when perpetrators share their side of the story. Google that one if you want to get your blood boiling. This same male-dominated perspective of faith is what sustains power-driven, twisted men in their subconscious belief that they don't just worship God, 
that they are God. It's bad enough that so much of scripture has been interpreted with this tone. But then we also have to deal with the fact that the stories we read in the Bible were written amidst patriarchal power structures as well. Proof being sexual violence takes place explicitly all throughout scripture. Do you hear what I'm saying? Even our holy book is not immune to these evils. In our readings today, for example, we look at four stories. They are what Phyllis Tribble called the texts of terror. And it's really not difficult to see the sexist undercurrent, the same vein of violence running through our society and churches today. In Genesis, Hagar is not even viewed as human, but as property, a piece of meat. She is a slave girl. She is went into. She is done with as they please. She is dealt with harshly. She is overlooked and abused and raped. And then ultimately with her child by her side, Hagar is cast out. Complete and total rejection. And I think of that pastor who was recently given that standing ovation after he shared his side of the story of a sexual assault he committed 20 years earlier. Well, I'll tell you her side of the story. Her side of the story was that she was a teenager. Her side of the story was that he was her youth pastor. Her side was that she told right away, just like she's supposed to do. Her side was that her trusted pastors told her not to say anything, that they'd take care of it, but they never did. Surprise, surprise. And after having to watch her attacker day after day in what was supposed to be her safe place, her church home she grew up in, she caved and she confided in a few more people. And it was only then that he was finally let go with a glowing recommendation for his newest church. And her side of the story is watching as the whole church throws a going away party in his honor. Her side is rejection. She is the one who is cast out for a crime she didn't commit, and her story does not live in isolation. It happens all the time. And Judges, the daughter of Jephthah, is sacrificed and blamed for it. You have brought me low, he says. This is her father speaking. You have become the cause of great trouble. And if it isn't bad enough that she's killed by her own father, the marker of her identity, the very last line of the story, the thing that's supposed to bring all of us grief, is that she had never even slept with a man. Do you know what kind of message a story like this one sends to women when poorly interpreted? When the theology you've inherited tells you you are less than, when it tells you you aren't woman without man or without child. Do you know what kind of a message a story like this one sends to violent men? She was sacrificed and blamed for it. In 2 Samuel, Tamar is raped by her own brother. He rapes her and then he discards her and the rest of her life is marked by humiliation because of an act she had no say over. And yet she is told, be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. 
sounds a lot like, oh, that's terrible, that's awful, but let's not say anything. Reminds me of, think about what it could do to his career. Or you could ruin his life. Why didn't you do anything? What were you wearing? Why didn't you speak up sooner if it really happened? Ring a bell? Tamar remained a desolate woman, and I can't help but see the similarities in the many stories that have gone public in recent months. Women desolate, women bent, carrying their secret wound around their whole lives long like a pregnancy that goes on and on, forever birthing nothing, only shame. And finally, we hear the story of the unnamed concubine. She is not even worthy of a name. It is one of the most unsettling stories of all of scripture. She is offered to a perverse group of men with specific instructions to ravish her and do whatever you want with her. The text says they wantonly rape her and abused her all through the night. She is left outside until morning, and then what does the dude who was supposed to have protected her do? He says, get up, we're going. He acknowledges nothing. He takes no responsibility, and when you think it cannot get any worse, he cuts her up in a dozen pieces and sends her limbs throughout Israel because he cannot believe what has happened. No ownership yet totally complicit, and he doesn't even see it. Makes me think about us. Does the church not understand the way in which it perpetuates this culture of sexual violence? As long as the church continues to operate so comfortably within the confines of a broken system in which one gender is constantly lifted up as more powerful and more privileged than the other, the church is complicit. As long as the church refuses to accept ownership for its contributions to the preservation of sexism and misogyny, the church is complicit. As long as the church pushes against feminist and womanist efforts, stubbornly holding on to these concepts as dirty words instead of acknowledging the healing and redemption that they could bring to fruition, the church is complicit. And as long as the church is complicit, it is no different than that master in our reading today, cutting his concubine up into pieces, limb by limb, and sending her out. He is the epitome of thinking he is doing some kind of good, when actually he is culpable, and he is a metaphor for the church when it comes to sexual violence. Even after all these years of reading and studying scripture, it still blows my mind that this stuff is even in our Bible. That these heart-wrenching, gruesome stories all come from our holy text. And people have spent years, centuries even, trying to explain these stories away or worse, ignoring them. But today we will do it differently. Today we do not explain these stories away. Today, we do not ignore them. Instead, we face them. We face them. 
People have spent ages trying to interpret these readings. But maybe we aren't supposed to interpret them. Maybe we're supposed to take them for what they are. Maybe we are supposed to sit with them and feel them. Maybe feeling them will compel us to change. And so we read these terrible stories one by one, and we grieve. We lament. And as Phyllis Triple says, we interpret them, these stories of outrage, on behalf of their female victims in order to recover a neglected history, to remember a past that the present embodies, and to pray that these terrors shall never come to pass again. She says, we tell these sad stories seeking to redeem the time, knowing sad stories may yield new beginnings. When I think of sad stories, I think of Maya Angelou, that great poet who passed away only a few years ago. She was a writer, a civil rights activist, one of the most brilliant and creative minds our world has ever been able to witness. And yet parts of her story are so sad. They're more than sad, they're terrible. Most specifically, at the age of seven, Maya Angelou, was brutally raped by her mother's boyfriend. He threatened to kill her if she told anybody. And it wasn't until her mother and brother found her underwear soaked with blood that she had stuffed under her mattress that she was taken to the hospital and everything came to light. That bad man went to trial and lost, but before he could pay his time, he was murdered. And at the young age of seven, she blamed herself for his death. She wondered, did her words, did her speaking out get a poor man murdered? And so she stopped speaking. And for years, she was practically mute. She didn't speak to anybody but a cherished few. And during this time of silence, she read, and her closest friends were the poets and the literary figures in her books. And as you can imagine, all this shaped her life, and her powerful and beautiful words have been a healing balm to the world. Now, what I am not saying is that this is somehow a silver lining. I am not saying that all thanks to her horrific experience, we were blessed with the person she became. I'm not saying, well, if that would have never happened, she wouldn't be the person she was. She wouldn't be as great as she was. No, 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 no. I can't speak for her, but I wish none of those things had ever happened. What I am saying is this. Life gave her a space to speak, and speak she did. And her poetry is filled with her pain and her poetry is filled with her victory, and her poetry has been a gift to us. Life gave her a space to speak, and she did. It is time for us to let pain and lament do some talking for a while. We need to make space for it, to create room for it. We need to ensure the church is a safe place for those normally silenced to speak out for the survivors to share their truth if they need to. This is our first order of business. 
because sexual violence is rampant, not just in sex secular culture, it is happening in our churches, it is happening in our seminaries, it is happening in our Christian homes. And the church knows it and has known it and has institutionally silenced it for too long. It is absolutely wild to me that perpetrators are protected while survivors are treated as heretics when they have the courage to speak. But it doesn't make it less true. So we make way. We make room. Us. We make room for the silenced to be silent no more. We create space for refuge and healing and find that we are healed too and we make a different way for our children. But how do we do it? How do we make room? Well, I really believe that big scary words like patriarchy and misogyny and sexism are actually at the bottom of this. And I also believe that a sense of urgency is required from each one of us to make a difference because the change that has to happen is massive. It starts with each one of us understanding and caring, actually giving a damn, that the predominant interpretation of scripture has long been one that results in the protection of perpetrator and punishment of survivor as heretic. When we can wake up to this realization, we can choose a different way. Our Bible is God-breathed. Our scriptures are holy, but the patriarchal blanket that lies over the reading of them is not of God. And just as Jacob or Job or the psalmist or Peter or Paul challenged and wrestled with God again and again, we are allowed and empowered to do the same in our time. We can look at the Bible and say, I'm not going to read it that way anymore. I disagree with what's happening here. And honestly, unless a whole bunch of us start doing this at the same time, not much is going to change in our churches or in our seminaries or in our homes. But once we see that we can either A, not call ourselves heretics for reading the Bible differently, or B, not care if we're a heretic for reading the Bible differently, then we can make room for other changes that will make a huge difference in the long run. For example, we can make room for different voices to speak. We can make room for women in the pulpit or other places of power. We can make room for a God that is beyond gender, not just in our theological interpretation, but in our spiritual practices. We can make room for a God whose divine feminine and masculine attributes are equally cherished both in our hearts and in our church services with no hesitation. If it sounds kind of scary to you, let me explain why. It sounds scary because you've never seen it done. It sounds scary because it's unfamiliar. It sounds scary because if you haven't seen it before, it may be hard to recognize it. 
holy. But let me tell you what else wasn't recognizable. Jesus at the Transfiguration. It's Transfiguration Sunday, you know. Do you know what transfiguration means? It means a complete change of form or appearance. A complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. What if Jesus transfigured with witnesses around so that they would know what it was all about? What if he chose Peter, the rock of the church, in order to give the rest of us pointers? What if when we were talking about the transfiguration in future, we were talking about Christ and his bride? What if we became the transfigured church? Personally, I don't doubt it's what God wants for us and from us and why spirit was sent to us and in fact lives within us. What would it mean to be a transfigured church? What would it look like? For one, it would mean that like Christ, we had a complete change of form or appearance. The church would have a complete change of form or appearance. It would mean that everything old passed away and everything became new which sounds a lot to me like making room, by the way. What if we made changing and transforming until we didn't even recognize ourselves anymore? The primary work of the church, and what if we stopped at nothing until that work was done? For the sake of our daughters, for the sake of our children, may it be so. Amen. Amen.